Hello, everybody, and welcome to the next edition of Infection Control Matters. Phil Russo here. I'm going solo. Both Brett and Martin have deserted me, um, but I've got a great guest for you today. So I would like to welcome Emeritus Professor Charles Edmiston from the Division of Vascular Surgery Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. Um, declaration here, Chuck and I have done a little bit of work together in the past with surgical site infection and uh, he's such an impressive bloke. I thought it was really important that we try to get him onto infection control matters. So welcome, Chuck. Well, thank you very much, Phil, for this opportunity to be on your podcast. As I indicated, this is my very first podcast, so this will be an interesting experience as to whether or not I ever do this again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll try not to make it too traumatic for you. (laughs) So, Chuck, I thought our topic today is going to be surgical site infections, and um, it's something that is probably not on the, the top of everybody's list when it comes to infection prevention at the moment. It's been railroaded by a small pandemic, perhaps over the past couple of years, and other types of infections, but it certainly still is when point prevalence infection studies are undertaken, ranks as one of the top three infections that occurs, a healthcare-associated infection. So it's still clearly a a major issue, despite everything we know about um, preventing surgical site infections. But I just thought I'd start off, Chuck, by asking you a simple question, I guess. And one of the earliest things that I learned about in surgical site infection, what, what was taught me, was that Wounds are seeded when they're laid open, so to speak. So the infection actually occurs at the time of the operation when the wound is is laid open. Is that true or false? That has always been sort of the dogma associated with SSIs. And what's really fascinating is that when when the surgeon first cuts across the skin, he he transects the basis glands and hair follicles and of course, you know, these are loaded with bacteria, especially sebaceous glands, and organisms cascade into the surgical wound. So even after the incision is being made, you know, flora from the skin is moving into the surgical wound. So we've always looked at ways to minimize that kind of contamination. However, with the advent of device-related procedures, we've learned that aerosols can also play a role as a risk, especially in device-related procedures, because once the device is implanted in the host, it gets coated with blood and tissue protein, and that's the glue to which organisms adhere to. So there's a big controversy in terms of how effective laminar flow is. Does it really play a significant role in reducing risk in orthopedic procedures per se? But I can tell you that there's no doubt that the vast majority of the infections involve contamination within that operative field. And you look at colorectal surgery, for instance, remember in the old days, you've been around for a while, Phil, that when a surgeon went in, resected the bowel, he never historically changed his gloves. He would come back out and he would actually close the fascia. Well, after he resected the bowel and created the anastomosis, he had essentially liquid stool on his fingers, and then he would close the fascia. Well, the orthopedic literature 
clearly show that you need to show, uh, change your gloves multiple times. So I've always felt there's a lot of cross-fertilization between orthopedics and other surgical disciplines. So the idea of changing your glove has now become a mantra in colorectal surgery. If you look at the guidelines for most of the colorectal societies, they always change, say change your glove at the fascial and subcuticular closure. The same thing is true for OBGYN, but we were always taught, I was taught that that wound gets seeded from the host own flora. But we do know that there are other sources and what percentage Actually, it's been proposed the percentage of contamination from sources other than the host on floor is about 24 to 30%. Could I just pick up on something you, you mentioned earlier on about um, contamination in the air? Do you think we've learned anything more about that potential with our experience with COVID and all the, you know, this sudden rush of knowledge or increase of knowledge that we have now about airborne infection? Can we, can we learn anything from that and, and translate that to the operating room? Well, what we learned with COVID is that we now know about the number of aerosolizing procedures that occur interoperatively. You used to think intubation, extubation obviously has an aerosolization there, but there are other procedures that also create aerosols that we didn't really think about early on. This is a difficult topic to really put my finger on. I'll tell you why. One of the things that is always stated in guidelines is traffic control in the operating room, because the rationale is if you open that door, and especially if you open the door going into the sterile area as opposed to the hallway, you lose that positive pressure. And that positive pressure causes that movement out of the room. Well, we conducted some studies back in 2004 and 2005 in vascular surgery, and we published them in surgery. And what we did was we cultured the nares, the axilla, the groin of all the members of the operative team. I cultured anywhere you'd let me culture, all right? And essentially, I got this library of strains, and we took the DNA out, primarily of gram-positive isolates. And then we put these sophisticated sampling devices throughout the room, and we studied 75 operations. And we showed very clearly that even in a laminar flow environment, there were organisms moving throughout the room that were from the nasal pharynx of, uh, of healthcare professionals. We could actually, using molecular epidemiology, determine the movement of these strains. The irony of this study, Phil, is that, and this is my thinking, is that with 75 operations, and they weren't consecutive operations, but they were spread over, over a year and a half, that someone's going to get infected. And we're going to get that isolate. We're going to take that DNA out. We're going to be able to make that molecular match. It never happened. It never happened. So when I look at evidence-based practice, there's actually no paper out there that says if I walk in and out of your OR 10 times or 100 times, is there evidence-based data to show that I pose a risk to your patient? Now, from my perspective, I always tell everybody I believe in good behavior. Traffic control was very, very important. But it's one of those events that we cannot determine the percent risk using evidence-based practices. It would probably take thousands of operations, hundreds of thousands, not millions of dollars, using molecular epidemiology to actually capture those strains that are in the patient and compare those 
that may have come off the healthcare worker or may have come in when you open that door to go out to the Paxil machine or go out to get some other device and bring it in. But it's important for the folks who listen to this podcast is I believe in good behavior and we should have all the supplies in the room at the time the surgical procedure starts, realizing, of course, you may have to go out. But it's one of those curiosities that we can prove a lot using evidence-based methodology, but this is one of those things that's been very difficult, especially for me, to try and fathom. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I recall very clearly when I was working in infection prevention in hospitals, the operating room of a cardiothoracic, uh, during a cardiothoracic procedure, and we had concerns about traffic, so we put a counter on the door and um, I, I think it was something around, you know, 100 openings during a procedure of that door. But also, also impressively, I think at one stage we counted something like 24 people in the operating room itself. Um, and because it was a teaching hospital, there were students and medical students, surgical, nursing students, plus all the support team. It's, you know, there's a lot of, lot of activity in that, in that space. Chuck, just, just there's, like I said, there's been lots of research on surgical site infection. What, what are the things that we definitely know works when it comes to prevention of surgical site infection? Well, one of the things that we don't do very well, and I'm, I'm looking back over my history, as I indicated, Phil, I've been doing this since 1977. And when I started working on my doctorate at Vanderbilt University, I worked at the Department of Surgery of the very famous surgeon named H. William Scott. And at that time, there was a procedure that was being performed called the jejunal ileal bypass, JIB. It was one of the very early bariatric procedures. And I got on board because they, they found out about 30% of their patients developed liver failure. And the theory was, is that in that blind loop, that, that small bowel segment, which they anastomosed to the transverse colon, they developed a blind loop syndrome. And then some toxin would then get into the enteropathic circulation, get into the liver and kill liver cells. We never figured that out, exactly what was going on. But what we did start to work on is risk reduction within that patient population. And it became very obvious to me, even in 1977, that the way we prophylaxed our patients was inappropriate, that the old... The old criteria for antibiotic dosing was if you were less than 80 kilograms, you got one gram. If you were equal to or greater than 80 kilograms, you got two grams. But the BMI for these individuals who were uh, having a bariatric procedure was usually well over 50. I really didn't get a chance to test out that hypothesis until I got recruited up to Milwaukee to develop a surgical infection program in the Department of Surgery. And at that point, we started studying intraoperatively tissue concentrations with that one versus two gram dose. And what we discovered with those bariatric patients who, and at Milwaukee, the procedure of choice, the, the, the bariatric procedure was a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass. And what we discovered in those patients is that the mean BMI was 57. You know, Wisconsin, Wisconsin is famous for cheese, for beer. We're not as bad as Louisiana, but we're pretty close. All right. So we have a lot of obesity and we started studying those patients very, very carefully. And we realized we had to change the dosing. Now there was no societal guideline. So we had to do it ourselves based upon 
three studies we did. One was in uh, bariatric surgery. One was done in C-sections. The other was done in, uh, on my service, the vascular service. And we showed that the patients in the bariatric service, less than 28% of the tissues in patients had sufficient ANCEF, first-generation cephalus born, to inhibit or kill Staph aureus. And less than 11% had sufficient ANCEF to inhibit or kill Staph epi. Gram negatives were a little bit better, but the gram positives obviously weren't being covered. So ironically, in, in the world we live in with antibiotic stewardship, where we're not supposed to be overusing antibiotics, the fastest route to resistance, Phil, is not antibiotic overuse, but it's exposing patients to a subtherapeutic level of drug. And we were doing this consistently to all of our patients. So we changed our dosing. We went from one versus two to two versus three. The pharmacists accepted, the physicians, the surgeons accepted it, and that actually helped significantly the outcome of the bariatric service. So there's no doubt that appropriate antimicrobial prophylaxis really does make a difference. Another thing which was ironic in that patient population is you, uh, you spend time in the OR, you probably recognize doing a perioperative skin prep on a bariatric patient is a laborious affair because of all the skin folds and such. So I thought we need to start doing pre-admission showers. But the evidence-based data, the Cochrane Collaborative, which at that time was really the gospel for that process, said there was no evidence that an antiseptic shower uh, the night before surgery had any impact reducing the risk of infection in clean surgical wounds. So it was a very famous infectious disease physician at the medical school in Madison, our competition in Madison, uh, who really kind of took me under his wing. His name was Dennis Mackey. And Dr. Mackey was very big on evidence-based practices. And he says, Chuck, did you actually read all those papers that was in the Cochrane Collaborative? Well, no one reads all the papers. You know, you read the collaborative. He says, go back and read the papers. I went back and I read the papers and I saw that there was no compliance component. Some patients took one shower. Some patients took two. Uh, and I realized the process needed to be standardized. Now, I got to be honest with you, Phil, I never liked the term standardization because I thought standardization doesn't give me any wiggle room. But well, one of our quality people took me aside and says, Chuck, standardization leads to less errors. I said, OK, I get it. So for about six or seven years, Phil, we worked on this process of standardizing CHG showers using 4% CHG. And then we also did a standardization on the 2% cloths, which became very, very popular. So we looked at it from a pharmacokinetic perspective, drug, dose, and duration. And the dose was 4%. That was one bottle of CHG. Uh, and the duration was two. And the timing was, this is interesting. When you apply CHG, the longer it stays on your skin, the greater the binding to the skin cells, tissue cells, any tissue, the greater the binding. So unlike a uh, liquid soap, which you might use at home, you know, you put it on, you rinse it right off. We had our patients put it on and then wait for 30 seconds or so before they rinse it off. And we had a compliance component associated with that. And what we discovered is by having a standardized process, the concentration on the patient's skin was greater than 1,000 micrograms per mil, far higher than the minimal inhibitory concentration, MIC-90, for most surgical wound pathogens. 
We published that data in 2015 in JAMA Surgery. In 2016, we published our standardized practice with a 2% cloth. And then a couple of, they had a couple of immediate papers that came out using that strategy. And there've been a few more, but one that was very, very successful came out of Northwestern University looking at lower, lower extremity vascular graft infections. And at that time, we were still doing a lot of uh, in situ graft replacements as, as opposed to endografts. And their infection rate was about 18% at Northwestern. They had a bundle. The problem was they weren't doing a standardized pre-admission shower because you think about these lower vascular, these fem pops, the groin area, the high microbial colonization. They started using this pre-admission shower strategy using the 4% CHG and along with their other bundled items, sort of tinkering with the process, and they reduced their infection rate from 18 down to 4%. So, and then there was a couple of orthopedic papers that have done that too. So the pre-admission shower, I'm a big fan of the appropriate antimicrobial dosing. Normothermia is extremely important. You know, it's interesting, uh, David Sackett, uh, David Leeper, who Martin knows very well, uh, introduced me this, this gentleman, his work, David Sackett, along with Archie Cochran, is the father of one of the fathers of evidence-based medicine. And he published a paper in British Medical Journal in uh, 1996, where he said, to improve patient practice, you have to combine the best data from systematic reviews and meta-analysis, along with clinical expertise. When you, when you look at clinical expertise, for instance, Things like normothermia, things like glycemic control really started as clinical expertise. And then people started studying it and they started having randomized controlled trials. I've had three surgeries, Phil. Have you had a surgery, Phil? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes, I have. I've had three in my own institution. Right? <laughs> and every time I had surgery, I learned something to improve the process. Of course, I was the hospital epidemiologist, so I'd see something that was going wrong. I said, we got to change this, you know. Well, I was freezing going into the OR. And one of the anesthesiologists I know very well says, Chuck, you were hypothermic throughout the entire case. And if you're hypothermic prior to the induction of anesthesia, we can't bring you back. You're not going to come back, especially once you get anesthesia. Of course, I didn't have any comorbid risks, so I was fine. Well, I, I saw that and I realized that we had to change our practice, preoperative practice. Instead of putting these very light, towels or, or blankets on our patients, we had to do active warming. So we started putting bear huggers on the patients. And there's a famous picture of me having my last surgery a, a year and a half ago, a picture of me with the bear hugger on as an example, with the controller in my hand, actually controlling my own comfort level. So that's very important. Yeah. And you know, glycemic control, absolutely no doubt, extremely important. Uh, I'm not at my second surgery. My uh, blood glucose was 145. My blood glucose is normally 88 to 92. So what was going on there? Stress-induced hyperglycemia. So I learned from that experience that what we really need to do is use hemoglobin A1C to get a firm understanding of the glycemic control in that patient population. So that's very important. So you have glycemic control and normal thermia appropriate antimicrobial prophylaxis, pre-admission shower. Uh, we can go on to things like the antimicrobial sutures, which has been a very controversial issue. But now 
that technology, along with the other things that I've just mentioned, have risen to the level of 1A clinical evidence. So there's a number of processes out there that are helpful. But the real problem that I see going forward, compliance. Getting, getting institutions to be compliant. Do you, do you think, if, if Martin was here, he's very big on compliance with bundles. Do, do you think institutions are good at measuring compliance or is it just an assumption? Well, they'll say they're good at measuring compliance, but I suspect you guys, like we are, we're all using electronic medical records. Hmm. And if you look at electronic medical records, there's usually not one place in that record that identifies all the interventions that may be involved in that patient. And that's, that's problematic because you really should have a pull-down tab where you check off the box, you know, did everything occur that was supposed to occur? That would be easy to find. You know, that's, there have been a number of studies published recently, we talked about one, that did not have very good compliance. And there was no indication to the reader as to whether or not the bundles that were in place, whatever they may have been, were compliant. So those studies that have shown the optimal outcomes also indicate, when it's published, indicate the compliance for those bundles. And there's a couple of excellent studies out there. One came out of the University of Michigan, uh, Skip Campbell's group, which he's director of the Michigan Surgical Quality Collaborative. And he showed that as you you added one evidence-based intervention after another, and the curve actually just goes down as they added one after another, there's 90 hospitals involved in this, that they went from approaching 25% for their colorectal infection rate to somewhere down to around 5 to 6%. And then the same thing occurred with uh, Cleveland Clinic, which has a 11-item bundle. Now, that's, this is an interesting topic, too. What's the optimal number? Mm. Who knows, all right? Mm. But this was an 11-item, and they use standardized infection ratio, which is what we do now. For the, that's the CDC directive, and we get our SIRs back, and we can compare our SIRs to other institutions and compare them to institutions across the country. Their SIR was above their baseline, that baseline of one was high above that baseline. They put their bundle in place and they immediately had a significant reduction well below the baseline. The beauty of that paper, Phil, is that that curve, which is at the the end of that graph, shows that bundle goes down. Then the SIR value goes up again. Then it goes down a little bit and then it goes down. That's what we experience, you and I would experience in our institution when we're incorporating, introducing a bundle, getting it in place. And there's a number of hurdles associated with those bundles. And one of which is getting the institution to put skin in the game because you have to have quality on board to measure compliance to that bundle. Because that's not the surgeon's job. That's not the OR job. It's not even the infection preventionist job, Phil. That's quality's job. Sure. You just mentioned something that's dear to my heart. Um, in Australia, we don't have any national data, surgical site infection data. We have nothing on a national scale. You use the SIR. You're, like you mentioned, you're able to compare your SIR with other institutions, benchmarks, state, perhaps national, I'm not sure. How useful is is that being able to do, to, to compare yourself with others? You know, we're pretty transparent 
If you go into the CMS website, it used to be called Hospital Compare, and I'm not sure they still use that, that name. You could actually put in a zip code. Uh, you could put in the Milwaukee zip code or put in the Kenosha zip code 53140, and that will tell you how many hospitals are in your area, in your immediate area. And then you can sort of uh, button down on each hospital, and you can see what their HIA, HI, HAI rate is their C. diff rate is, uh, you can even look at some selective infections like colorectal, what that rate is. That has been very, very uh, helpful in sort of seeing where you are. But it also has an impact from a consumer perspective because now patients can actually go to these websites and actually look at the outcome, the quality outcome for the institutions that they're gonna actually be having their procedures in. So I think it's been very, very helpful. It's a little bit hard because if you look at the publications, some publications still use percentages and some publications use SIRs. It's, you can't really, you know, switch them around. It's very hard. You know, the SIR, it's, it's observed versus the expected, and the expected is, is calculated by the CDC. So you've got that number, and it's also calculated over a period of time, whether it's a month, two months, or three months. But uh, I think it's been very helpful. And I think the poll process will probably be refined further uh, as we go out. And of so, course, in the U.S., and I'm not sure that's true in, in Australia, there's a punitive component. So if you're an outlier, you have a diminished reimbursement by being by virtue of being an outlier. Yeah, yeah. It's, this is a whole big, it's one of my interests actually is the public reporting of healthcare associated infection data and how useful it is and what it's used for. Perhaps we can, I can take you up on another occasion to, to talk about that because the US is, is much further down the track than, than Australia is in, in that space. Um, Chuck, we're, we're going to start to come to an end, um, but what I wanted to ask you about to, to finish off with was there's a whole bunch of new technologies, um, you know, being uh, put in front of us um, all the time and that the more we learn about the environment and, you know, airflows and the usefulness or not of laminar flow these days, what do you see on the horizon? What, what can we look forward to when it comes to new technologies or, or new interventions for, for prevention of surgical site infection? Well, Phil, if you've, if you've seen some of the recent documents that have come out of the CDC and other institutions, is that the concept, the concept of deep cleaning of surfaces and areas around the OR table, while that's not going to go away, there's, there's value to that. The real focus going forward is going to be ventilation. There's absolutely no doubt ventilation is, is going to be a key, especially in many of these aerosolized viruses. My hope is that as we move forward, and there's some technology out there, there's a company up in Minnesota that's actually looking at changing that laminar cascade so it's not as dispersed. You know, as that comes down, it bounces off the table, it bounces off you and me, it creates these eddies. Well, they have a technology where it's almost like an envelope around the patient. So I think we're going to see improvements probably in the laminar flow. Laminar flow is not going to go anywhere. I mean, there are people who say laminar flow does not provide the value. I think it's going to be very hard to dismiss that because especially in orthopedic surgery and other CT procedures, laminar flow is considered a very, very important co component of the safety issue within the OR. Uh, we mentioned 
ultraviolet. There's there's some technologies out there, intraoperative technologies. But it's as to whether or not they're going to catch on, I think that's going to be uh, a hard sell for a, a lot of institutions. There's no doubt that there's a value to UV technology, especially if you can retrofit it into the room. But I really think the air component is what we're going to be looking at going forward, which I've always thought is very, very important. But as I indicated to you earlier, it's been very hard for me to assess the actual risk myself to the patient that's on that's on the table. The other thing that's very, very important is we have to do a much better job at documenting and mitigating comorbid risk factors. We had a patient a few years ago who was having a redo procedure for an orthopedic implant. The gentleman had 11 comorbid risk factors. Now you cannot actually mitigate everything. You know, if a patient's going to have a procedure, it's not considered elective, he has a BMI of 56, there are some things we can do on the front end, as we discussed earlier, that might be very important. The problem is, you know, he's not going to lose 100 pounds within a four-week period to have that procedure. So the question is, how, how, do we, how do we manage that patient? And this particular gentleman was one of those patients. Well, what we did was look very carefully at all of his comorbid risk, all 11 comorbid risks, and then we designed a strategy in collaboration with the, with the surgeon. Now, I always tell surgeons, because they think they're the captains of the ship, I tell them that may be true, but you're not masters of your patient's destiny because <laughs> everything that's around them, they can't control. Surgeons yeah. who are good are good because they've internally standardized themselves. But it's all those other processes fill around the patient that for the most part isn't standardized. Yeah. So I think some of these new innovative technologies that are coming out, I think are going to be helpful in allowing us to try and standardize those processes going forward. And I think at some point in time, we can probably sit down and talk about some of those technologies because there's a myriad of them yeah. that have come out. And some of them have come out because of the COVID issue, especially the, the aerosol component, the minimized aerosols, especially as far as the wound, as the wound base is concerned. Sure, sure. Thanks, Chuck. And um, so it sounds as though it's a good note to finish on. You've come around to to supporting the standardization, which is good to hear. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was a hard it was a hard sell until someone sat me down and said, "Chuck, you standardize the process, you reduce the errors." Oh, I get that. You know. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, look, Chuck, it, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. It's been a very quick thirty minutes or so. Um, there's lots of areas that we touched on that perhaps I'd like to explore with you further on a, on a later podcast if you're happy to do that. I would. This is pretty painless, Phil. <laughs> oh, well, the second time round could be harder. We'll see. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you, Chuck. And uh, thank you for everybody who's listening. And uh, we look forward to you joining us next time on Infection Control Matters. Ciao.